0: Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. And I can't believe it, but we are at season nine. My guest this week is Craig Maud, who is a writer, photographer, and walker. He's the author of Kissa by Kissa and a handful of other books. He's also been an advisor for Medium Corp in San Francisco since 2011. He is a mentor and lp for the designer fund in san francisco he's been a mcdowell ragdale and vcca writing fellow a prada feltrinelli literary prize judge an 85th annual art directors club judge and an advisor and lecturer for the yale publishing course from 2011 to 2019 His writing has appeared in Wired, The Atlantic, Eater, New Scientist, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, among others. In addition, since mid-2019, he's been membership-funded via special projects, which means that he's created a membership that is able to cover his base costs of living and expenses. Most recently he's accomplished something I previously thought was impossible, which is the opportunity to both independently and traditionally publish the same book, which is his forthcoming Things Become Other Things. We'll talk about the nuance of this project, but let me just say that I had to cut down Craig's bio significantly to make it fit into the space I've just given it. There's so much more going on when we look into Craig's career. We start early on in his process of making books in this conversation and follow us up to the point that things become other things became a book deal that becomes a new kind of book deal. I'm thrilled to have this to share because this is not a story that is an overnight or immediate success. There is luck, yes, and there is incredible story of connection and friendship, but Craig was kind, generous, and realistic enough to share equally about the parts when it felt pointless, when it wasn't going the way he wanted it to, and it really felt like something to give up on. So if you've ever felt like, what is the point? Don't skip over this episode because of this impressive bio. This episode is for you too. And for anyone who thinks that there's got to be another way to put books out, this conversation is for you too, because we're redefining what publishing means right now all the time. Craig has generously agreed to come back in 2025. Shocking to even think about that as a timeline when his traditionally published version of the book is out to look at the entire journey. But this is the first part and leading up to something that is quite new and that we can all look at ways to redefine what publishing means for us. And I hope that this conversation will get you started with confidence and curiosity. It's a true honor to introduce Craig Mott. Hi, Craig. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I want to give everyone listening a little bit of context before we get into what's going on with your current book because I think your process of I think of it as bookmaking I'm sitting here with Kissa by Kissa next to me and there's just something a little more than publishing happening here and so I just want since you're a photographer and a writer and there's an experience that goes along with the books that you create I want to know, what was the initial impulse, if you can share, that said to you, I must make these things into books?
0: Yeah, well, I've been sort of making books, not sort of, I've been making books for about 20 years now. And I would say, you know, around when I was 20, 21, I discovered McSweeney's. And I don't know if you remembered, but so I'm 42 right now. And so this is like 20, this is early, you know, 2000, 2001, basically. And McSweeney's was really kind of like the most interesting thing in the publishing world by far, right? Like Dave totally. Eggers was just doing his wacky stuff. Eli Horowitz, I, I don't know if he was there yet or not, but Eli Horowitz would come in later and he would kind of take over and helmet and keep them being as wacky as they ever were. But like what was really inspiring about the McSweeney's stuff is like it was smart. It was funny. But they really cared about design. Like Dave, Dave Eggers is sort of one of those crushingly annoying people where, you know, he's obviously <laughs> a brilliant writer and he's an amazing designer and uh, a pretty good business person as well. You know, I mean, McSweeney's, I think, did really well as a publisher and I think continues to. Yeah. But So I was looking at books like they were putting out, like Dave was, but was putting out through McSweeney's and just getting super inspired. I mean, just... You know, twenty twenty one in the in the university bookstore, and just like always, you know, okay, what, what's McSweeney's done now? What's McSweeney's done now? And they had their like, I guess they were quarterly or maybe monthly, kind of weird packages where they sometimes it'd be a, a cigar box, sometimes it would be all black and white. You know, it'd just be all these experiments, and it kind of really blew up in my mind as a young designer and writer about what what was possible with books, and kind of they they became sort of a uh, like kind of a guiding light for a lot of the book making that I would go on to do, um, going forward.
1: Great. Yeah. I remember there was one that was iridescent, wasn't there? I, think I remember. Yeah. Gl- there that-
0: was glow in the dark stuff. I mean, yeah. it was, yeah. you know, it was just fun and it was expensive, you know, like clearly they're spending a lot of money producing these things. And actually the, I, I worked with this, I was an art director at a small press right out of university and we couldn't Yeah, It's hard to remember now, like 20 years ago, it was actually kind of difficult to get your books printed if you weren't like a real player, like if you weren't doing big runs, you know, now I feel like print on demand obviously is very accessible right now and the quality has gotten better and better. But even if you want to do offset, there are so many options and so many people willing to talk to you to do a run of 500 or a thousand. Whereas 20 years ago, we couldn't really find anyone to talk to us, in, in the U.S. at least. So we we stalked McSweeney's, and we <laughs> saw that they were printing in Iceland with this company called Odie, the only printer in Iceland, and they mainly do Bibles. Oh, wow. And we approached them and we said, hey, we'd love to do a book with you. We're big McSweeney's fans. And they're like, sure, let's do it. And so one of the first books I've worked on was this crazy book called Kuhaku that is two-color silkscreen, one-color foil stamp, on a cloth bound book and Odie, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what we were doing and we just got so lucky. It came out so well and Odie was so proud of it, of the work they did. Like they were just so enamored with this book. They mailed it to designers and agencies all over the world without even telling us. And so that for me turned into this invitation to become a, a judge at the art director's club in New York in like 2003, 2004 when the email came, I thought it was spam. And uh, <laughs> and that was that was really amazing because that was just, you know, a sequence of kind of serendipitous connections working with Odie by chance because we were kind of stuck and like McSweeney's and then Odie getting excited about our work. And then one of the people, the design agencies that got Kuhaku was so impressed. They reached out to me to come and be a judge, even though I had literally done nothing in the design world of Note. Um, aside from produce this one book. And that trip was sort of life-changing in some ways. I mean, I felt like an imposter and I felt like I definitely shouldn't be in this room. I shouldn't be judging anything, that's for sure. But I went and I was able to make a bunch of really interesting connections. And some of those friends I made on that trip almost 20 years ago now um, are still dear friends and collaborators to this day. So it's pretty lucky. It was pretty great. So from the beginning like I've, uh, the books i've made or I've worked on have always been pretty pretty funky pretty you know highly designed uh highly produced you know aiming for you know kind of a higher price point which has always made sense to me because why even compete with trade hardcovers or paperbacks you're never going to hit the scale you're never going to hit the price points so you might as well go go up to the next tier and do something a little more special that kind of sets you apart so that book also got us our Distribution in the U.S. I mean, it just unlocked all these things. It was really lucky. Um, it was kind of yeah, you know, completely like just fools falling over backwards into like a gold mine of not of gold, but of you know like Tootsie Rolls or something like that. <laughs> you know, we didn't make any money, but it was fun and and we connected.
1: Yeah, of inspiration or connection. And so, if we fast forward, so you were working with all of these other people, working with a small press, creating books, and then. Now being based in Japan and starting special projects, how did you evolve from working within someone else's press to essentially creating your own now?
0: Yeah. So when I was doing that, I was living in Japan already. Oh, so you are. I, w- I was, you know, I've been in Japan for basically twenty to 23 years now. And um, so I was art directing basically remotely. And yeah, I mean, I worked with that press for four or five years. It just kind of outgrew. We, I sort of outgrew what we were doing. I wanted, I had just bigger ambitions and so kind of went, went separate ways. And and um, I have always just kind of reluctantly produced my own books. So I did Art Space Tokyo, this book, Art Space Tokyo. Um, and we kickstarted that. We were one of the first Kickstarter books. This is 2010. Uh, so Robin Sloan did the first, first Kickstarter book. And then we did Art Space Tokyo about Six or seven months after Robin did his book, I think it was Annabelle uh, uh, Scheme. I think was the name of the book that Robin did, and that went really well. You know, we didn't get hundreds of thousands of dollars, like or millions of dollars that like people get today, but we got you know I think like thirty or forty thousand dollars, which felt insane to get in two thousand ten. And so, did that book? Distributed it. Um, I'm, I don't even remember how we distributed it. I think I think how do how did we sell it? I think it was all just direct. I mean, I think I was going to the and post must office have been and at just, that
1: point. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. Cause they're really even fulfillment centers didn't even really exist right. back then for, for independent people to use. So, you know, you probably I, I worked blocked on that it book. Out. I dude, It's so, tra- it's so traumatizing. Anything <laughs> to do with fulfillment. People are like, whenever they tell me about a project they're going to do, I'm like, be ready. The most painful thing is going to be putting stuff in boxes and, and shipping it.
1: Yeah, like, alert your friends now.
0: Do whatever you can to not do that. Like yeah. Anything you can to not do that. And um, so I've I've kind of always worked on projects like that. And in 2011, 2012, 2013, I was doing like one-off books. So I do just a one-off blur book. And then in 2016, I had been doing all this walking and I started doing quote-unquote serious walking from like 2013. And I'd done three years of it. And I was kind of like, oh, you know, th- these walks are incredible when I'm alone, it's incredible. When I, when I bring someone, it's also incredible. We have all these amazing conversations. I wonder if there could be an artifact that we could produce out of this walk that would somehow capture the experience. And so I invited Dan Rubin, a photographer and old friend and Matt Mullenweg, actually the the founder of WordPress came out too. And the three of us went on this eight day walk and Dan and I photographed, and then we hid in a farmhouse for a week and we put, we put together a book. We, We needed like Strong rules, so it didn't spiral uh-huh. out forever. You know, right. we we're really busy, and we we're like, we're just going to do this as a blur book, and then we kind of put it together. And then we're like, well, the blur book stuff wasn't really working out. We had so we we they were, they were kind of being inflexible about certain things that were kind of, was kind of being annoying. And so then I talked to my printer here in Japan. I was like, hey, if we did this book with you, what would it be like? And he came back with a quote, and we're like, wow, this is like pretty reasonable. So we ended up doing it as offset, and then I got the printer in Japan to do fulfillment. Thankfully. Oh
1: um, smart. And we
0: and we kickstarted that book. I mean, this is all reluctant. None of this was planned. We didn't want to do any of this. And then <laughs> Leica sponsored the book over here, and we were able to do the launch party at the Leica Gallery in Ginza, which was super cool. Um, so it ended up being like a series of good things, but we were always kind of like, Oh god, we really don't want to do this. Okay, I guess if we have to do okay, I guess if we have to do this. So I, you know, my goal is always how can I make sure I'm doing the writing, I'm doing the creative work. How do I make sure I'm not doing things to distract me from that? And the easiest way to distract yourself from being creative is to like run a publishing company. I think, you know, so it's like, <laughs> it's I've so just tried tempting, to
1: like,
0: uh, it's, it is, I have, you know, and now because I kind of have these systems set up, I have, I have people, you know, pitch me books all the time or friends of friends or you know, this person wants to do a book, or you know, and it's like, Craig, you, you know, why help us do it? You know how to do it. Blah blah blah. And I'm just like, I do you know how much time, even if it's not your book, it requires to to steward this thing into the world, to midwife this thing into a good place. And like, I have too many of my own books I want to do. I know the next five books I want to do. It's like the only thing that's keeping me from doing these books is just time. Like just sitting down, getting them done. I'm trying to get things become other things done right now. And that needs to get finished. But then on the, on the back end of that's five more books. And so it's like, I've got the next 10 years of work I can see in front of me. And so when someone says, Hey, do you want to do our book? I'm like, look, unless you're, I don't know who it would have to be for me to do their book. It would have to be, I don't like, I, I have, I have no idea who, you know, I don't know. I can't even think of a celebrity that would come to me and I'd be like, all right, I'll drop everything to, let's do this together. You know, it's like the yeah. guy, what's his name? He goes, he ghost wrote uh, Will Smith's book. Uh, the guy who wrote the uh, subtle art of not, like not giving a fuck or something like that. Yeah, oh that yeah. That yeah, did yeah, really yeah. Well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I forget his name, but like Mark Manson? I remember hearing, yes, mm-hmm. that's it. And uh, I remember hearing a podcast where he got called to do Will Smith's memoir. And I just remember thinking like, Oh my God, I don't know. You couldn't pay me enough to do that. It's like, it's just no, because it's true
1: it's like it just you, sucks
0: your life force out you're giving yes. your life force to something else you know
1: yeah and you have to know which part of the process is the part that you love I mean we yeah. all know that we probably didn't get into this to stuff envelopes and take them to the post office so that one's easy to give away but yeah. it's 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 hard to to balance out okay how am I going to pay for my life and continue to live the life that I want, and also be able to do the kinds of projects I'm excited about. I think that's a tough, hard, it's a hard line to hold.
0: Yep. Well, and how, how do you stay true to your creative vision as well, Mm -hmm. um, without compromising it? And I mean, a lot of what I'm doing today is because I tried to go through traditional routes, and I got rejected. You know, I started special projects pretty much five years ago now, which is crazy to think about. That's been five years. That's really scary. But I started five years ago, mainly because I had been pitching to the Atlantic and other magazines, and I'd been trying to work with editors there. And I was just rejected. I was just rejected. I'd been pitching. I you know, I worked on a novel for like five years. I got into McDowell with the novel. I got into VCCA. I did the Iowa Writers Workshop. They do an intensive like two-month program in the summers that you can apply to get into and just kind of do... It's basically like two, three workshops a week. I got into that with the novel. Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted this novel. I couldn't sell it to so anyone. So
1: heartbreaking.
0: Well, I mean, in a way, it's good because I don't think it's that great of a novel. But <laughs> like, but like, I tried for years to to go these more traditional routes, and I just, you know, despite having some online notoriety, some online minor fame or whatever, like followers, like a a newsletter with, you know, X thousands, tens of thousands of, you know, readers or whatever. But like, despite having any of that, I really couldn't push anything through these traditional channels and it was driving me insane. And the last thing I wanted to do was start a membership program because I was like, oh my God, the overhead on that, the excess that like the creative sort of energy suck that that's going to take up, it was all terrifying. And it kind of felt like giving up a little bit. Like I was like admitting defeat in a way, but, you know, I was able to structure in such a way where I said like, look, I'm not doing any of this for you. This is like NPR. I'm just going to keep doing everything I'm doing. And if you've enjoyed what I've done, you can become a member. Here's like a formal way to kind of like join the group and, or become part of the tribe or community or whatever and support what I'm doing. But look, I'm not going to do anything special for you. Like there's no members only stuff because that's not the point. I don't want to be, that's the the curse of the membership program is that you then do everything for the membership program and you lose sight of your original creative goals. And what I found was really interesting about starting special projects back in 2000, I guess it would have been January of like 2018, 2019, January, 2019. When I started it back then, I launched it. It did so-so, but not really that great. I got really depressed because I was like, oh my God, okay, not only am I sort of giving up on traditional roots, but like this is not going to generate any revenue, really any material. Revenue. But then I kind of got over that and I realized, okay, I'm just going to fight for every new subscriber and I'm going to keep doing my work. And uh, I'm going to use this as permission, even though it's not a tremendous amount of money. I'm going to use this, whatever this amount of money is, as kind of like a creative grant to go do weird creative things in in the world that maybe I would have been afraid to do just on my own without the formal permission of a membership program. So it was like through that, I was able to do my first um, big walk, 43 days walking from Tokyo to Kyoto and plus some other stuff. And I did that because of the membership program, because I said, look, okay, these people are paying me. This is gonna be my job to go do this walk, to broadcast it, you know, and it ended up being this incredible walk, life-changing. And then the writing I was able to do during it was kind of life-changing. I wrote a big piece for Wired, I wrote a big piece for Eater. Um, like as I was doing this super intense physical thing. So it kind of this taught me about the power of asceticism and uh, you know, writing plus physicality for me is a really powerful combination. And I was actually able to be more generative than ever out on the road walk despite the fact that I was walking 30, 40 kilometers a day you know, and really, really, you know, doing this for like 40 days, it was, it was was madness. It was madness. And, um, I came out of that walk with like the mailing list I ran, the experiment I ran, those two essays that I, I did were like, it was some of like my, my favorite writing I'd ever done in my life. And then I was able to take that work and turn that into Kisa by Kisa and, you know, rework a bunch of that. And then when the pandemic hit, And the year kind of shut down. I was like, okay, let me make this book. And again, kisa by kisa was going to be a blurb book. I was like, okay, let me just do like a, like quickly knock out some kind of blurb book. But then with the pandemic, I thought, okay, well, I have more time. I can't go anywhere. What if I did this, you know, more formally with an offset printer here and formed a new relationship and went to like an even higher quality kind of obsessiveness, obsessiveness of book production. And um, lo and behold, uh, it worked out that ended up being a really good decision.
1: Oh, it's so beautiful. I cannot imagine it as a blur book. I'm just, I've got it right. What, Is it can, still... can you
0: hold up? Is it there with you? Mm-hmm. So you've got, okay. You've got one of the originals. I don't know if that's first edition or second edition.
1: I think it might be first.
0: Is it signed in the back?
1: Did you sign it? No.
0: Okay. So it's second. Second. But you're I early.
1: We're early. Yeah. We're early adopters over here. But you I can't imagine get... like with the with the beautiful visible binding and the linen cover. I'm sorry you all can't. I wish I could like create a virtual <laughs> space where you could all touch it, but it is a thing of beauty this book.
0: Buy it at shop.specialprojects.jp.
1: <laughs> there will be a link in the show notes, not to worry. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah, so it it became that which is well
0: and what what was really interesting about that is with the 2016 book of Dan Rubin, Bound, like we produced a thousand of them. We were selling it for a hundred bucks, you know, because of everything I did in the publishing world, I kind of, I understand how that price point works or doesn't work. And, you know, we sold, you know, the Kickstarter did well, and then we sold a bunch and then it took, you know, a year or two and we ended up selling them all out. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a thousand case by cases and a hundred bucks a book, and what I'll do is, I'll do a little discount for members. So if you're a yearly member, you get, I think originally it was $50 off, now it's $40 off. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, let me do this big discount and see how this works. And that first edition sold out in like three days. It was just bananas. It, it was just so. Yeah, we good.
1: missed that one. Like, we got the second I mean, one.
0: I couldn't, I, I didn't know what was going on. And then, <laughs> and the conversion rate for non members to members was like 20, 30%. So, like, if someone wasn't a member, saw the book, and was like, oh, okay, This book's a hundred dollars, but if I pay one hundred dollars to become a member, I get fifty dollars back. And so so like thirty percent of the people who bought the book who weren't members saw that and thought, yes, that's a good deal. Let me pay one hundred and fifty dollars instead of one hundred dollars because I want to be part of the you know the tribe or the community. I want to, you know, and that was shocking to me. like i did I did not anticipate that. And so what I found actually, by total, you know, bumbling happenstance was a business model, product market fit here. Of doing kind of high-end, expensive-ish, I, I call them their photo plus literary nonfiction books. So it's literary nonfiction essay vignettes, um, you know, linked mostly linked, some a little, you know, a little bit, maybe a little bit a little bit disconnected, like a um, a Jenny Ophel style, you know, it's like where Mm -hmm. she's got all these vignettes, not quite that disparate, but like, uh, you know, of that kind of Maggie Nelson, that kind of universe of, you know, these, these short little poetic vignettes matched with photography. And, um, and so that's the sort of philosophy of that book. So like taking something like Sebald, like Rings of Saturn, where he's mixing in black and white photography Um, with his nonfiction, you know, circuitous reflections on history and walking through the British countryside. You know, I kind of saw, okay, well, let's take all of those influences and mix them with, you know, someone like Alex Soth as a photographer or um, Larry Sultan, uh, Mm -hmm. who has a beautiful essay about, um, uh, about his parents, plus these beautiful large format photographs. So kind of drawing inspiration from all of that to put together this sort of photos plus essay book. And selling at a high price point and giving a big discount to members like that, just everything kind of came together there in this way that like, I feel like I've been working towards for like 20 years and it was like, whoa, okay, this is cool. This is great. And that was like a really beautiful surprise of the pandemic. And, um, you know, since then I've just been doing more walks that are all essentially drafts for future books. And uh, I started working on this next book two and a half years ago, with the intent of finishing it two years ago. So I thought it would be done in, I had, because I went on this big walk for 30 days, and I wrote, it's like 35,000 words. And I was like, okay, this is the book, I just need to edit this. And then I'm just gonna like knock it out. And I started oh, the famous September. last
1: words, That I'm just gonna knock it out is the most yeah, just, brutal thing we could say to ourselves. Yeah.
0: So my whole life is just a series of self-deceptions. Like anything that I've gotten done <laughs> is only because I've deceived myself into doing it. Like that's truly the trick is to just go, Oh yeah, this is just gonna be a month. And so September two years ago was when I started, and the book is finally coming out in Fine Art Edition in at the end of November. Finally.
1: yes and then okay but there's a twist there is a twist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which which brings me full circle to the the situation where you have based on what i read in your newsletter negotiated the most unusual publishing situation i think i've ever heard of yeah i did not know this was possible it's like it's like an albino tiger here it is Getting to produce the book yourself, and yet also mm-hmm. a big five deal, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. how did this happen? We must know.
0: Yeah, so I had been talking to Sean McDonald at FSG for literally twelve years, like since twenty eleven. <laughs> we've been <laughs> we've been getting lunches, and I've been you know I, I've had so many lunches and coffees with Sean, and I and I. Just thought okay, I'm just my what if when I finally get a book that someone wants over there in New York, I'm gonna to sell to Sean and that's great. All, a bunch of my friends have done books with Sean that he does beautiful work like I, I respect him and you know everything he's producing so much. So like I I got a year and a half into producing things become other things and the book just kind of shifted, right So the story shifted it went from being just about a walk to... Um, to being about this childhood friendship, this relationship with this this kid that I met in first grade, and we became best friends. And it became it it sort of grew. The, the cast of characters grew, and then it, one of my readers who became my editor for this fine art edition, Ali Chance, he's an amazing writer and editor in London, and um, he was reading it and he was going, "Hey, who's this kid Brian?" Like this kid Brian kept popping up. He's like, "This kid Brian's really interesting. What's going on here?" I was like, "Oh man, like is." This is going to have to be the Brian book. Shit. Like, I have been trying to, I'd been thinking about writing the Brian book for like basically 25 years. Wow. Because, and I don't know, I don't know how, I'm trying to figure out how much to like talk about this because it sort of spoils the book a little bit. But at the same time, you kind of, I don't know, you're going to, you kind of get the sense of this when you start to read the book. So I'm just going to kind of say what happened to Brian. So Mm -hmm. we were best friends in elementary school like brothers he had two sisters but i had no siblings i'm adopted so i always was just enamored with his family and i just wanted to be you know part of the brian crew and we just loved each other and it was this amazing friendship and then i tested better in school he tested worse my town is kind of fucked. it's this sort of down it's economically depressed blue collar american town everyone kind of worked at the airplane engine factory my grandparents met at the airplane engine factory my parents were sort of almost like an arranged marriage at the airplane engine factory. It's pretty weird. It's like factory really kind okay, of Okay, there might
1: be a book in this one too. I'm just saying. The airplane engine factory book, just saying.
0: <laughs> Could be. Might End be of depressing. the queue, maybe.
1: End of the queue, but so, still. So so
0: 1980s, the town is not, you know, I think the town peaked in probably the 60s, 70s in terms of like being able to have a great middle class life. And then the 80s, it sort of fell apart with Reagan and with jobs kind of moving south or over to China. And um, I guess China came a little later. This is more, everyone was moving south for tax reasons. And so anyway, the situation wasn't super great, right? And so if you go on like Zillow and you type in an address, it'll tell you, it'll like rank the middle schools and high schools around that address. Oh, yeah. And so If I go to Zillow now uh, and type in my home, the, the, the house I grew up in, my high school. So like one is like, you're going to get shot in the face and learn nothing and not graduate. And 10 Ooh. is like, everyone goes to Harvard um so oh, my boy. high school my high school was a two last time I checked
1: oh wow and
0: yeah so it was like it was way down there so like if you weren't I was really lucky I tested well somehow and I was able to get into sort of the advanced more advanced classes and they had the gifted program back then I'm sure they don't call it that now but like I was very very lucky to kind of get into that track and my friend Brian didn't test well he got pushed into this sort of you know the shop class stuff, and he ended up just going in this other direction in middle school, and he ended up going to the alternative high school uh, for kids that had like disciplinary problems and stuff like that. So the system really cleaved us apart. And um, by the time we graduated, we you know we hadn't talked in really a couple years, and I was off uh, you know to go to college to kind of run run off to Japan. Which me running off to Japan and actually doing these giant walks is also sort of a, a trauma response, I think, to this place I came from, and um, and Brian ended up uh, getting murdered a couple of weeks after we graduated. Oh
1: so my god!
0: Stabbed, uh, you know, and just killed at this party, and wow. weirdly not that uncommon, you know, that this that was always kind of looming in the background of this town, and um, and so you know, I, I that obviously. Was incredibly traumatic for me. You know, we're eighteen, just graduated. He actually, we were both seventeen, just graduated, and um, you know, I tried to process it in a a lot in some of the creative writing I was doing in university. My first writing workshop, um, I was writing these stories about Brian. I was going back. I was I was trying to process. I didn't know how to do it. I have a folder I found on my computer, like uh, named after Brian's street, and I like it was trying to. I was trying to put together this collection of of stories, kind of almost like a. Sandra uh, uh, Cisneros, uh, The House on Mango Road, sort yeah. of inspired by that and, and her childhood, the way she wrote about it. And I was thinking, oh, I can kind of do something young adulty with Brian and to process what had happened. But anyway, that petered out. I never really touched it again. And then the more I started to do these walks alone, you know, I do these, like I said, 40 days alone, walking alone in the countryside. And that kind of meditative and i'd be offline no media no podcasts no newspapers no news and really force myself to be present and just observe and be aware of my surroundings and think about why the surroundings are the way they are and that really got me thinking almost like as a form of therapy back on where i came from and as the japanese countryside kind of depopulates and um becomes economically depressed the towns aren't turning into like fentanyl violent you know kind of chaos zones of of squatters and and abject poverty there's a grace to the way these towns are finishing that to me is showing a path of what could have been or what can be anywhere in the world if you set up the social systems in the right way and you support the people and you you can help these towns have a graceful landing you know they can they can shutter they can finish the last train can can keep running until the, 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 high, the last high school student graduates, you know, bringing the kids to school. Like that's a common story you hear in Japan, actually. Yeah. And yeah, and so bearing witness to that and thinking about that and then thinking back to my childhood and how resource um, deprived we were, how scarce, uh, such a scarcity mindset everyone was operating from, you know, like no one was thinking about abundance. And so this, this, brian sneaking into the narrative of this walk um and my friend oliver picking up on that and then me going oh my god i guess this has to be the brian book and then that meant removing everyone else from the book except brian and he's the only other named character in the whole book and um it becomes this meditation on our friendship through the lens of walking this japanese countryside and interacting with the people, you know, fishermen and old ladies and, you know, drunken horse betters and, you know, uh, policemen and, you know, what, like everyone I meet along the way and kind of feeling, um, like all these connections, these greetings are a way of renewing and at- actually atoning for that guilt I had of, of not saving Brian in a way. So that's what this, this book becomes. It be- And so you can see like this is much more than just a book about walking and like hey here's some quirky stuff in japan you know this is it's so the, about a year ago I, I thought okay i should really pitch this to the people in new york because like i don't think i'm going to have another book quite this resonant at least i don't see mm. immediately uh, a book like this um uh, sort of just sitting there waiting to be done and like this feels really special and i feel like brian's story and you know, the book isn't didactic. It doesn't It doesn't hammer home. It's not like, oh, America's broken and this is, you know, bad and da-da-da. It's just like, look, hey, here's our friendship. Here's what went wrong. You draw your conclusions whether or not that should have happened. Here's what I'm observing in Japan about a, in a place where this isn't happening, but you could see how it could happen, but it isn't. You guys draw your conclusions from that. Um, and so, you know, I went to Sean right away and I just didn't get a super enthusiastic response.
1: Oh, wow. And,
0: yeah, and I so I kept Sean, editing it.
1: If you're listening.
0: <laughs> I still I want to do a book with Sean. Sean, let's do a yes, book together. Sean, I still it to...
1: might be it might be a different book.
0: And so that was like pretty disheartening. Like I just didn't get this I was like, let's do it. And I'm looking for a partner, right? So I'm really looking for someone on the other end that is a partner in this process to, to elevate the book to a place I can't get to on my own and to help it reach a bigger audience by kind of saying like, hey, why don't we expand this a little? Why don't we expand that a little? What does this mean? Like a lot of what I write is very Craig Mott cinematic cinematic universe, right? So like my members, it's like writing to my members, writing to people who get, who've been reading my stuff for 10 years, you know, 15 years, whatever. And so working with an editor who can kind of expand that to a broader audience, especially now that it's like, not just about me, but it's about kind of remembering this 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 kid, Brian, remembering his life, honoring it. And no one else in the world is going to be able to do this. And so I feel this tremendous responsibility. I'm terrified about this book because I want so badly for this to honor his life and our brotherhood in a way that I just hope I've done justice to. And so I am I was looking for that kind of partner as well, going to New York and, and you know, Well, someone who would have which-
1: a similar connection to you and the project that you had to Brian.
0: Yeah, just someone who's, who goes, I get it. I get it. I get what you're doing. I don't want to change the structure. It's got kind of a weird structure to it, um, but I think it really works. And um, so uh, anyway, in March, I ended up going to New York for this conference. And I kind of tacked onto it all these other publisher meetings, you know. And I went to, I you know, I was talking with agents. I've I, You know, by, by the time I landed in New York in March, I'd been rejected by like 30 agents. No one wants to be my agent. No one would be my, like, no one. I, and I was, you know, and I was totally pulling every string I could pull it's like oh this this I'm friends with this person's you know this person has this amazing agent friends with this person has an amazing amazing agent and like everyone was just like and I've oh, also sold you know. out
1: three editions of a book i published and you know yeah, it's, it's not a, like you've never done anything
0: to like, look, we're gonna show s- that it would work we're gonna sell 10,000 books like look I'm coming to you whatever the whatever we do like we're gonna sell 10,000 books come on like we're like well, I, you know, ah, what do I have to do? And I don't know. I don't know if it's because, yeah. You know, well, I did actually have some agents say explicitly to me, well, you know, you're sort of not the kind of person we're looking to represent right now, you know, and younger agents too, you know, certainly a dude who's like, you know, 40 and white and straight, you know, it's like, this is not, I mean, writing about another culture you know, but I've lived more than half of my life in Japan. Like I, I'm adopted. I don't feel, it's like, I'm in this very bizarre place where, and I think I write about Japan in a way, really in a way that no one, I haven't seen too many other people do. And I, I think I'm, I'm able to come to it with enough self-awareness where I'm not applying this sort of annoying expat lens to things where I have embedded myself in a way That feels honest but also not um artificial you know i know that i can never become a japanese person i can never become part of society here and so i embrace my position without malice if you look a lot of a lot of writers who've lived in japan for a long time who've written about japan there's a tremendous amount of malice and anger uh kind of under under underneath what they write and um, frustration, a lot of looking down, a lot of othering, a lot of so I, I don't I don't feel like I bring any of that to the table. I'm very I try to be very aware of that. So anyway, I think I think I'm actually a great person for someone to represent, you know. And but everyone rejected me, and I I got to New York, and I still didn't have an agent. And um, another friend uh, was like, "Hey, I'm 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 close with Andy Ward, uh, you know, at Random House. He." really likes your work. I kind of float. I was on a Random House podcast. And um, and he's like, hey, look, let me introduce you and see if he's interested in meeting or whatever. And so did a little intro over email with Andy. And he was like, yeah, of course, dude, let's meet. Come on, come on over. So I had a meeting with Andy. I had a meeting with a couple other people. I had a lunch with Sean. And I went to New York and I met up with Andy. It was Andy Ward and Ben Greenberg. And it was like one of the greatest publishing meetings I've ever had in my life.
1: Oh, yes.
0: I go to the Random House office in, in Midtown and I've been there a few times before. And I go up, go to Andy's office. It's me, Andy, Ben, and we're just up there. I I brought Kisa by Kisa. You know, I was like, look, this is the kind of stuff I make. Here's the pitch for the next book. And it was just the energy was like, yes, let's do this. And, you know, it's like Andy's, I mean, Andy's, you doing George Saunders. You know, it's like, I'm like, they, dude, I'm just grateful to meet you. And for your stewarding of someone like George into the world and supporting his work and giving him like, I like his kindness and philosophy and openness and his like open heart that you feel kind of present and everything he does on every page. I'm just like, that's, this is an incredible thing that you're, you're uh, multiplying at scale in the world. So thank you. Um, So we had this incredible meeting and they said, great, send over the latest manuscript of things become other things and we'll get back to you. And. You know, and then I met with Sean and I said, Sean, do you want to do this? And he was like, yeah. But in the end, I was like, great. Can you send me like a proposal for what we could do together? And I mean, I think he's just really busy. He's just got so, he never sent anything. So, you know, and I'm not not saying this with frustration or anything. I'm not trying to like throw Sean under the bus. I'm just saying this because as an example of, I think it can be very confusing to people, to writers in the world, navigating agents, navigating editors, navigating these relationships. And they sometimes don't make any freaking sense. You know, no, it's like... No,
1: no sense I, at all. I,
0: I've been talking with Sean for so long. And, you know, even even though... And I consider us like good friends. You know, it's like, hang out. It's It's funny. He sends me books. Like, I'm like super... I'm grateful to get all these things. And, you know, even in that context... Someone can be so overwhelmed that they can't follow up in a way that feels like, okay, they, they're they really into this. And Andy and Ben also didn't follow up. Nobody followed up. And <laughs> so I went to New okay, York. Okay, so how long,
1: I, at what point this do is you March. feel like, this is March. Okay, so when did you go? What is the timeline here?
0: So this is this is March. I went in at the beginning of March, uh-huh. did these meetings. No one got back to me. Everyone rejected me. As far as I was concerned, I got like two or three more agent rejections when I got home from there. You know, over. So this is now
1: what April.
0: It's like beginning of April, and honestly, like you know, I wish I could say that these these rejections didn't hurt, but they drove me total insanity. Like they hurt so badly. And, and it, it wasn't, it's not about validation because it's like, whatever, I've got readers and I know I can sell these books and that I got this, you know, whatever. Like I I don't need validation. I've done McDowell. I've done VCCA. I've done Ragdale. I, you know, the Iowa writers workshop. It's like, I know I can kind of like whatever spar in the ring. I can, I've got, I've got enough going on that I like, I'm not worried about that. But what I realized, what it kind of came to light, what these rejections were touching was that I really, 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 I just want a partner in this process so badly. Yeah, I just so badly just don't want to be doing this alone anymore. And I just was so exhausted. You know, it's like, I've been carrying and running all of this stuff and producing all these books on my own. And really like, I was just like, guys, I, I'm not asking for the world. Like I just want someone I can hop on the phone with and like someone that can guide me a little bit. And like, no one, no one was there. And and actually, you know, this is a reflection. This is a childhood trauma kind of manifesting as well, because if you look back on our town and the infrastructure of that town, like we were unsupported. Me and Brian did not have people there for, for us either. And, and a big part of our friendship was generating these this kind of safe space to exist in and being there for each other because we didn't feel like our parents were there for us necessarily, or other adults in the town were there for us. And so, you know, that was kind of those wires, those like open wounds were being touched. And it really, 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 it really got me. It really hurt. And I kind of had this like two, three day moment where I was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And my friend, Ali, I, you know, I have like five readers that I love and trust and have been reading the book. And Ali, I've known for 23 years. We went to, you know, we met here in university In Tokyo together and um, he's just been one of my dearest friends and one of the smartest people I know and one of the closest readers and he was really helping the book kind of evolve in incredible ways and I said look could I know you're really busy but like at some point in the next couple of months like I'm just gonna do this book on my own like screw it I'm just gonna do it on my own gonna publish it in November and I'm gonna I'm gonna move on that timeline. I just got to get this done. It's gonna kill me. I'm like, can I have like a week of your time? Like I maybe I fly to London, maybe you come to Tokyo, and we just we just nail this thing. You, you know, you as the editor. And he said, Oh, I'm gonna be in Japan in like two weeks, and I have a week that's completely free. I'm I'm there for you. And it was like ah, honestly, it was so like good. It was kind of one of the like the kindest things anyone's ever done for me in my life. You know, and it wasn't like out of you know, sympathy or wasn't out of like pity. It was like, no, you know, he's like, look, I love this book. I love this project. I want to see it happen. And I'm happy to be there for you. And so he came, he came and he stayed in my studio here. And we did like the most intense editorial week of my life. And the book at the beginning and the end was a completely different creature. And it was just, so much and it was just like okay this is really interesting and so that was april i kept working on it in may and then in june i you know continued to work on it uh, meetings with my printer okay getting getting press time starting to put in orders for cloth for paper um we had to get all those orders in by the beginning of july and uh, and then I, I you know i i did one of my pop up kind of newsletter adventures and i did this jazz tour at the end of june into july for three weeks and just as i'm about to head off on that i get an email from ben greenberg at random house and he goes hey one of our one of our senior editors read things become other things and she loves it and she loves to talk to you and i was just like
1: and you're like wait I what <laughs>
0: like, i was like okay all right you know i'm about <laughs> to head off on this jazz tour i've got i'm going to be doing so much writing Could be so intense, and I was like, "All right." So, three days later, I'm like off on the tour. I'm in this hotel. I do a call with Molly, Molly Turpin, and like, it's just a great call. And she, you know, Molly's saying everything right about the book, and she like had an old manuscript even. So, like, I, you know, she's talking about the book that was pre, super intense editorial week, and plus all the other rewrites I had done, and I said, "Look, oh, it's so much better now," and. You know, she's saying all these things. And I said, like 45 minutes into the the call, I go, look, what are we doing? Like, I got to be honest with you. I'm publishing this book in November. Like, look, I went out, I pitched to everyone. Nobody got back to me. I got rejected from everyone. I don't even have an agent. Like, I don't know what to, I, you know, I got to get this book out. I Kisa by Kisa, she was holding it. I was like, look, I've sold 4,000 copies of that book so far. We're going into our fifth printing. Like, I'm going to sell five, 6,000 copies for sure at a hundred bucks a pop. And she was just like, oh my God, what? You know, and I was like, look, I'm, I've am i got to get keep things moving. I can't sit in this weird Bardo, Netherland of nothing where no one gets back to me from New York you guys are like taking me out to nice lunches and then like not returning my emails. You know, it's just like, I've got to, I've got to move on with my life. I can't stay in this kind of like supplicative position with you guys. Like it's, it sucks. And I said, so look, I'm producing this book. It's going to come out in November, fine art edition. Um, Do you want this book? Like, what are we doing on this call? I said, (laughs) Like, why are we talking? Like, yeah, this is great. I've done so many Talks like this with people who are like, "Yeah, I love it," and then nothing happens. So, like I said, Molly, what are we doing? She's like, "Yes, we want the book. Ben loves it. I love it." She's like, "Let me talk to Ben, and we'll let's do a call in like two days." And I was like, "All right." So I'm doing the jazz tour. I'm super busy with that. Two days later, we do a call with Ben and Molly, and they try to talk me out of doing my edition, and they're sort of like, "They they do." (laughs) <laughs> well they were like what would we have to pay you like would this advance you know you know be enough to like have you not do it and you know at that point I was like not really like yeah, I don't I- think you can I don't think you can pay me enough because like look here's the numbers you know plus memberships plus I'm like it's really financially almost impossible for you to especially for a book like this come on like what you know yeah. what would it, what would be a generous advance for a book like this like you guys it's gonna be really hard for you to hit the the number that you'd have to hit for me to go okay let me put this aside and like you know just you know do you know especially considering how far we've taken it the place that it was in in terms of production and i said look guys these aren't competing editions Your edition, like a hardcover trade hardcover at a $30 price point or like a $20 Amazon discounted price point is not competing with my weird $100 fine art edition. Like those aren't competing editions. And like, look, I'm not going to sell that many of this $100 book, but if we do a great hardcover together, not only do I, I might like, I I don't know for sure, but like, I'm pretty sure, you know, look, we're going to push, we're going to push 10,000 copies. I'm going to like, I will bang the drum. I will pull every string. I will go on every podcast. Like I've gone on a walk with Tim Ferriss. Like he, we've walked together for a week. Like I'm going to make that, I, I'll fly to Austin. I'm going to like, I'll put a gun to Tim's head or I'll slip some <laughs> ketamine into his, his his morning oatmeal or whatever, like, w- bullet, like
1: bulletproof coffee. Yeah,
0: I'm going to like, I will pull every, you know, I, I like I for this, for like a random house edition, like we will, we will sell this book. And I think everyone who buys the fine art edition will also buy the the, the hardcover edition because these are super fans, right? Like in these, you know- it's also
1: a great gift. Like, you know, if you are the sort of person who like me is clutching the fine art edition and you want to share it with others, how wonderful to have that option and how wonderful to bring people in who maybe can't buy a hundred dollar book, but would very much love the story.
0: For sure. And- it can be a different book too. It expanded and written with a broader audience in mind, rewritten in bits. And you could kind of see the gears turning like, oh, maybe this is possible. And they came back. Well, they said, how did it go? What was the sequence? I think they're they're like, okay, let us, let's do another call. And I think we did another call. And on the other call, they're like, okay, we want to do this. We, you can do your edition and we will, we we want the hardcover edition. And I said, great, and I was like, I don't have an agent. There's, there's someone I, I've been talking with that I that would probably like be my agent wing person if I needed them for this deal because I feel like I should have someone, you know, representing me. to because I don't know anything about this. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, great. So I reached out uh, to David McCormick, who he's been in the industry for thirty years. Uh, Lisa Brennan Jobs, who is, has become a close friend. Um, he represented her for her book, Small Fry. And uh, she kind of introduced us. And I said, David, you know, David, very gently rejected me many times. And, um, but he said, like, you well, can, hey, would look, you do anytime. it if I have
1: a deal at Random House?
0: <laughs> yeah, So he, I, he always said, like, look,
1: <laughs> this sort of changes need, things, doesn't it?
0: If you need it, if you need advice, you can always call me. And I said, look, like, dude, I got a deal. deal like, I'm just going to give you that, like, basically, this is an easy way to make a bunch this of money. This is free money for you. Yeah. This, you don't have to do anything. And um, and he was like, great, let's do it. David is like also the most terse human being in the world. Like our phone calls are, I don't think we've ever spoken on the phone for more than like 90 seconds. Like there is no <laughs> chit chat <laughs> with David. He's just like, good to get it done. Okay, what's, what, what do we need? This Great, right, boom. And um, so they started going back and forth and then we got an offer. And this is all within, so from that first call, from that email of Ben being like, hey, we're interested in the book, Molly wants to talk to you, to getting an offer, I think it was like two weeks. Awesome. Which feels fast for that industry.
1: Oh, yeah, that is like lightning fast. Well,
0: because I said, look, I've got to buy, I've got to put in these orders for paper and everything, so I need this to be done yesterday. And they're like, got it. Okay, great.
1: (laughs) So... I love this flip. I love this flip so much. And there's so many things that this situation flips. This story is so good because so many people, I mean, myself included in the past, have thought I don't wanna put something out myself because I have to wait if I wanna do this with the wingman, with the publisher partner, when in reality you're having done the exact opposite is what got you there eventually.
0: Yeah, just by luck and not being, um, you know, I was in a position of great power in the sense of like, look, I'm either gonna do this on my own and I'm gonna sell five to 10,000 copies of this book on exactly the terms I wanna sell it on, produced in a way that no one in the world will pro- will produce it to this level of quality, working with an editor that, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the, one of the best editors in the world that I can work on. Like there's no compromise for me In doing this on my own, except it doesn't have the potential reach that going with like Random House has. That's the only thing. But like, as far as I'm concerned, look, I've been so burned by the industry, by traditional venues and whatnot, that I I really didn't feel like, oh God, this is my chance and da da da. It's like, look, I felt that for a decade, and nothing worked out, and so I had to produce all this. I had to just do this on my own. That's why the agent rejections hurt so badly because I was, I was really tired. Like it just been, it'd been like a long time, a lot of work, a lot of rejections. And so it was a very, very lucky, super privileged position to be in. Um, But also like, I wasn't being a jerk about it. I was like, look, like you guys, that was one of the greatest conversations about a book I've ever had in New York. Molly, you're, I love the work that you're doing. I respect the work you're doing. Everything you've said about my book is exactly what I want an editor to say about it. Who's going to help expand the the reach of it? So like, I would love to work with you guys. So I was like, you know, I was I wasn't being just like, hey, it's my way the highway. I was just like, look, <laughs> I think there's a way where both of these things can exist and they they co elevate each other. Like my hardcover, my fine art edition is going to elevate the hard the hardcover trade edition, and then obviously the better the trade edition does, the better like my whatever my special edition will do for people who really love the book who want to find you know, it's almost like a, I don't know, like behind the scenes in some ways mm-hmm. of, 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 uh, you know, getting my edition and seeing what it becomes with the hardcover is kind of really interesting. So we were just, you know, I was in a, i was in a lucky position and i had kind of set everything up and I had proved it's possible with Kisa by Kisa. So it wasn't like theory. It was like, look, here's the numbers. These are my books. Like here's my, you know, my business books, you know, like Yeah, I'm in a good position. So yeah, that was it. Was just the timing and everything was good, and the deadline had to be tight. So that all kind of came together, and then it took us like two and a half months to finalize the contract. Though it was really stressful. Like we announced it at Publishers Marketplace Mm -hmm. like six weeks before it was finalized, because the legally is around allowing me to do my edition, right? No, they had never written a contract like this before, and you know I was also trying to protect myself by not being too hamstrung by by the the rules. So there are, there's some rules like I can't I can there, there's a price point I can't sell it below, and I can, I also can't produce more than x number of copies until uh, two years after the hardcover comes out. Okay. So basically, until a year after the paperback would come out, I guess if it goes to if if the hardcover standard scheduling is hardcover comes out a year later, paperback comes out, right? And so they want they want to have two years where I'm not producing more editions of my own during that period. And I kind of when we had initially discussed the contract, it was I would produce a, a set amount until the hardcover was published, and so having this two year hold shocked me and I started pushing back and I was trying to figure out like it was actually really kind of hairy the back and forth you know and I'm talking with David and David's you know I you know it's kind of frustrating because David's in the middle and it's not we're not speaking directly and I'm 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 just talking about this because of the you know you can tell this story and have it sound like oh it just like was super smooth but actually the details around exactly how this was going to happen um were a little bit complicated and it got to a point where I was like I was like, David, what, like, what are they worried about? Like, why are we, why are we fighting over how many copies I can make? Like, there is no competition between my edition and their edition. So, Especially but, like, not the same,
1: with paperback.
0: Right. Even with hardcover. It's yeah. like a hundred dollars versus $20. Like it's so different. They're, they're not competing. Different markets, different human beings. Um, and eventually I, I said like, look, okay, what, what, Number of books, because they're worried about not selling. They're worried about me cannibalizing, mm-hmm. which sure, sure, sure. I get it. I get it. I get it. Like, that may, like I, I get it. I get it. And this is an experiment. We're all, we're all taking a risk here. I'm taking risk. Everyone's kind of compromising in, in certain ways. I said, okay, find out from them what number they, they want to sell of the hardcover that would, that would release me from my, my limit.
1: And ah. they came
0: back with a number and I said, okay, if we don't sell, like in my mind, I'm like, if we don't sell that number in the first month, I'm going to be depressed, upset. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and it's a big, it's not a tiny number. Right. But I'm like, great. I'm like, great. Put that in the contract. So either we hit that number at each any, any point, it's not like it has to be in the first week or two weeks or whatever. At any point, if we hit that number, then I can, I can make more copies. I can sell more copies. Or two years after the hardcover comes out. And so having that in there made me feel okay. Because I want them, I want everyone to feel like they're winning. I don't want any of us to feel like we've compromised or, oh God, I'm I'm sad we did this deal or whatever. Like I want them to be psyched. And I also don't want to cannibalize a serious revenue stream for me. Because I want to keep doing books and I need to make sure I make money and I save money. And, you know, it's a big risk for me. And so anyway, that all came together and we finally signed it a couple weeks ago and it feels good. That's so
1: great. And also the other thing too, is that by creating this model, it opens up the possibility for other people to, this may be an experiment that works for creators as well as publishers going forward.
0: My ideal... This is my ideal situation is every book I do is in this format. And if we plan it better, we can release at the same time. You know, and so like right now the release gap between my edition and the hardcover is gonna be like 18 months. Wow. And um just because like if you think about it, yeah. Like Molly had to get me her notes. I literally just got her notes today, um, on the manuscript. And so we want to expand it by And it's not a big book. It's like 35,000 words, 40,000 words. And so, you know, 50, 55,000 words feels like it'd be perfect. I like shorter books anyway. I think like 35, 40,000 words is an incredible, like if you're dense about it and you kind of are working in the poetics of like Jenny Ophel and and Maggie Nelson, and stuff like that, like Michael Andange, you can do a lot with Mm -hmm. 35,000, 40,000 words. And so I don't want it to expand very much more. And Molly doesn't want it to expand very much more than that. And um, so I've just got her notes. And my plan is basically January, February, March is to just do that expansion, working with her. I already have a bunch of notes for things I already want to expand. And and I have scenes already. I want new chapters I want to write, chapters I've already written, actually. And so I can already see how it can kind of expand. But that's going to take three months. And then it's March, and then you want, next year's an election year, so you don't want to be coming out in the fall.
1: No. And
0: because everyone's kind of trying to avoid the fall, the summer is super loaded next year. And so that feels busy. And so also, if you're going to go with a big five publisher, and you want to really lean on their marketing machine and their PR machine and their salespeople, and you want to give them enough lead time, you really got to give them a year yep. in advance So start getting those advanced copies, April, May to the salespeople, having them pitch to Barnes and Noble, blah, do all that stuff. Right. And so in order for that to all happen, I mean, a pub date of like March, 2025 kind of makes sense. That's really the earliest it can be um, given. I meanwhile
1: yours is practically out the doors, we're recording.
0: Yep. Hopefully we're, we're ironing out final, final cover kinks. I mean, when this is the other, <clears throat> the other thing is that when you produce your own stuff, it's like the amount of overhead and, and production complications, like there's always something. It's so stressful. So we're kind of solving this weird cover problem that we were having. And I think we figured it out and I think we have a path forward. So that's, that's getting done, but it does push the timeline out a couple weeks, but mm-hmm. I think we're gonna be able to hit um delivery at the beginning of December, so uh the plan is to go on go on sale basically like november twenty second and start shipping a week later. and I think that's I think we're gonna hit that um, but that's that's in like a month, which is terrifying. There's so much yes. work I have to do to get that done,
1: but by but, the time this episode comes out you'll be you'll be through it.
0: Uh I hope yeah I can't you can even do like, it. the distance I can feel
1: it I can feel it the number of
0: things between right now and this book shipping to people like time dilates and expands and it feels like 40,000 years between now and then so you know the random house edition is like okay that, like that'll come out in 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 like 40, 46 eons like I like it just it feels so <laughs> far away um but I'm excited you know to get my edition out <clears throat> And also to kind of, I don't know, respond a little bit with the Random House edition, because I'm going to have essentially, you know, three, four thousand readers that are early readers, super fans, that will be getting this, my edition. And I'm curious to see what they think, you know?
1: Yes. And if you're listening, okay, you can it, be one of those people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. the The sign up list already like <clears throat> the I'm gonna sign a thousand copies of that of this first edition, and those are already basically gone. Um, so like the wait list is already well over a thousand, and um, and we'll see. I mean, like I said, I've sold five thousand Kisa by Kisa, so you know I think most of the people that have gotten Kisa by Kisa are really delighted by it and kind of surprised by it. <clears throat> I still get emails from folks being like, I had no idea this book was going to be so much deeper than just like, hey, here's some cool cafes and pizza toast. It's um, you know, there's a vulnerability to it. I think there's uh kind of openness to it. And like if you liked anything, any aspect of that of Kisa by Kisa, the things become other things is that times 10 million. So it's like it's everything wow. in Kisa by Kisa that I really loved about it in terms of being vulnerable and and open and reflective and also shining a light on people and i just think the people are are more interesting funnier the walk is more is more interesting and the reflections and this friendship i think you know uh, elevating this this kid brian and his life and and our connection um i think it's i think it's pretty cool i think it's a pretty cool story so i'm really excited
1: i can't wait well we could go on and on for days but i think i think that's the the perfect point to to let everyone run to your your site and try to grab it and get on the list i'm so so grateful we got to hear this whole story and thank you so much for for coming on to share it
0: thanks for having me Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash fitness to catch up on the
1: latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.